This is, this is the second to last week of Jeremiah. Next week is the last week of Jeremiah. Um, so we're doing Jeremiah 40 to 45 tonight. Jeremiah chapter 40. And let's pray. Lord, we pause in silence at this moment to recall all you've done and to ask you to open up our heart to know you're here. And that, Lord, the many worries and problems that plague our minds and hearts, that scatter us in a many different ways that, that those would be put to rest now. God, that here in your presence, there would be peace. There would be fullness of joy. That your very being would be communicated to us and imparted unto us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us us individually, us as a church, and us as the people of God in all generations. You've included us into a great story of restoration, and we're so thankful to be part of that. Psalm 138, as we keep praying, says, Thank you, Lord. Everything in us says thank you. Angels listen as we sing our thanks. We kneel in worship facing your holy temple and say it again, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Most holy is your name. Most holy is your word. The moment we called out, you stepped in. You made our life large with strength. When they hear what you have to say, God, all earth's kings will say, thank you. They'll sing of what you've done, how great the glory of God. And here's why. You are high above. You see far below. No matter the distance, you know everything about us. And when we walk into the thick of trouble, keep us alive in the angry turmoil. With one hand, strike our foes, and with your other hand, save us. Finish what you started in us, God. Your love is eternal. Don't let it quit on us now. We cling to it and hold to it, Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 40. So the question tonight is, is bigger and better always bigger and better? And on the flip side, is the mediocre and mundane always mediocre and mundane? Here we have in our what, six chapters this week, chapters 40 to 45, we have what happens after the fall of Jerusalem. 
And there's some political struggles and there's some personal decisions to be made. And there's debates about geography. Where should we live? Is God here in this land? Is he over there? Where are we to be? We want the bigger and better. We don't want the mundane and the mediocre. So let's go through our chapters. And we see Jeremiah chapter 40. Um, Jeremiah is given an option as he's captured along with the rest of the exiles. The city of Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians. It has now been destroyed and dismantled. It's, it's a pile of ruins and rubble. And the best of the population has been taken from Jerusalem with the Babylonian army as they march back up to Babylon. And Jeremiah is with this group of exiles being transported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, on the way out of the land uh, in Ramah, they recognize who Jeremiah is. And the king's commander comes to him and says, we know who you are. You were the one proclaiming to your own nation to surrender to us. And every word that you spoke, your God has brought to pass. And so they want to give him a free pass because he was very pro-Babylonian. He was on the Babylonians' side, in a sense, calling Israel to go with God's plan and surrender to the Babylonians. And so they give Jeremiah an option. Verse 4 says, Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Saphon, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Now what is, so Jeremiah is given an option. He's had long, hard years, a couple decades of preaching to a rebellious, stiff-necked people, And finally, everything he prophesied to come has come to pass. I've been telling you to surrender to the Babylonians. They're going to level us. You didn't listen. Here they have leveled us. And now you're forced to surrender to them. And Jeremiah is looking, in a sense, at the end of his ministry. He has spoken the word he was sent to speak. And now the Babylonians themselves come to him and offer him pension. Come with us to Babylon. We'll take care of you. We got a house for you. We got, you know, the, the whole deal is going, we want you with us, Jeremiah, but we'll give you the choice. And so Jeremiah is now at this crossroads as he's with the Babylonians on the way to Babylon. And he's got this choice. The ruins and rubble of Jerusalem where the rejected remnant remains or the glory and the majesty, the progressed culture of Babylon with a pension and a well, a position, a place. I'm not going to be a slave there. I'm not going to be a servant. See this option? Jeremiah, you've deserved this. You worked hard your whole life for this. It's time for you to retire, isn't it? (laughs) 
And he, he could have. There's nothing wrong with that choice. He may have been right too. But Jeremiah is looking at the city that he's loved and bled for and suffered for and preached for. And he sees a remnant that still needs direction. And rather than choosing the ease of Babylon, Jeremiah chooses to stay in this wretched, stinking, reviled, destroyed land with the rejected remnant, the poor of the poor, and a city that is destroyed. And there's nothing, there's no culture here in Jerusalem. It's destroyed. It's starting over. Jeremiah, towards the end of his life, has a chance to just kick back and watch football in Babylon. Or to start over literally from the ground up in Jerusalem. And he chooses in verse 6 to go. Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, at Mizpah and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. So Jeremiah opted for the remnant, the ruins, the rubble, starting over. So who is So who is left here? Well, we see in verse 7, when the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahiakim governor in the land and had committed to him men, women and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon. You see what's going on here? Who's left? Well, Jeremiah, the poorest of the poor who were not taken to Babylon. So in other words, the Babylonian, the great culture of the world at the time, comes and looks at the Jews and says, here are the finest, and these are the ones that don't fit in with our society. They don't quite make the cut. They're not good enough. So we're going to leave them with the ruins and the rubble, the rejected remnant, and we're going to take the rest so that's who's left. And there's this guy named Gedaliah who's been appointed by the Babylonian king to rule over this rubble and this remnant. So that's the situation that we have. Now, there is a guy named um, Ishmael, and there's a guy named Johanan who are going to come into the scene here. And Johanahan uh, gets wind of a rumor that this evil Ishmael is plotting the assassination of Governor Gedaliah. And so he warns them, this is going to happen. And, well, Governor Gedaliah says, I think it's not nice of you to spread rumors. So he ignores the warnings. And then we see in chapter 41, verse 1, in the seventh month, Ishmael, our villain, the son of Nathiathan, son of Elishma, the royal family. So Ishmael's from the royal family. He's a person of prestige. Uh, one of the chief officers of the king came with 10 men to get Eliah. That's the governor. As they ate bread together at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nathanahiah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, son of Sephim, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also took down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. Wow. So the conspiracy happened. The assassination is finished. Ishmael killed off Gedaliah. Why? Because Gedaliah was appointed by Babylon. Babylon. 
We want nothing to do with Babylon anymore. Ishmael from the royal line wants to restore pure Jewish royalty. So kill Gedaliah, assassinate him, and he's now in charge. But here's the problem. <laughs> you got a big empire that appointed Gedaliah, and you basically told them off. <laughs> we don't want your governor. So there's going to be consequences coming. And it gets worse. Ishmael is just thirsty for blood. In verse 4, on the day after the murder of Gedaliah, 80 men arrived from Shechem. So these are pilgrims coming to mourn and weep the loss of the temple. And guess what he does to them? Kills them all and throws them into a cistern to cover up the dead body of Gedaliah and his servants and throws them into a cistern. So there's this big hole filled with dead bodies and this is what Ishmael's doing. So he's attacking and now we've got full-on anarchy happening as a result in the land of Israel. So this madness is going on and uh, Ishmael's not stupid. He knows that Babylon's going to come and retaliate. So what does he do? He takes captives and he tries to flee to a country in the east. Ammon. Now on his way, Johanahan, the one who warmed Gedaliah in the first place that Ishmael wants to kill him, intercepts him. And the raid happens. And, and Johanahan and his men are able to free the captives from Ishmael. And Ishmael is able to run with his life and he gets out of the picture. So he doesn't die. He flees and he's gone. So now Johanahan's in charge and the people are listening to him and they all gather together and they come together and they realize that we have a very, 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 very big problem here. Here I am in charge, not Gedaliah. I didn't do it. Ishmael did it and he ran over to Ammon. So uh, what's it going to look like when Babylon finally gets here and cleans house? Well, it's going to look like Johanahan is the guilty one. And all of the people are in dismay at this point. What do we do? Consequences are going to come. Let's go to Jeremiah and let's ask him to pray to God that he can give us direction. So this is what they do in chapter 42. Then all the commanders of the forces and Johanahan, the son of Kephan, the son, the son, and the, all the people from the least to the greatest came near, verse 2, and said to Jeremiah the prophet, let our plea for... <clears throat> Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. So help Jeremiah, ask God for us. So Jeremiah said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers, I will tell you. I'll keep nothing back from you. So Jeremiah goes and prays to God. What, what, what are they supposed to do? What, what is this remnant, this rejected remnant led by Johanahan, who didn't really do anything bad. He tried to prevent the situation, but now he's left in charge and all of this is coming upon him. What do we do, Jeremiah? So verse seven, at the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and he summoned Johanahan and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, so the entire rejected remnant is here, ruins and rubbles around them, Jeremiah and Johanahan and his people, what's going on? What did God say we're to do? Verse 9, Jeremiah says to them, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. This is what he says, verse 10. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, whom of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. And so he's telling him, he says to stay here. He's going to take care of you. Johanahan, he's not going to take your head off. You guys are going to be okay. Babylon is going to be gracious because God will protect you. Stay in this land. God wants you guys to replant and rebuild. Make these ruins and this rubble become something beautiful again. Well, apparently they already had their plans made up. So when Johanahan comes to Jeremiah and says, pray for us. And then Jeremiah says, well, God says, stay here. He gets outraged. He's, he's angry. He's, this, is, this is not what we had in mind. I was pretty sure God spoke to me when he told me to go to Egypt. And they were kind of, you know, how you can be sometimes like, oh, pray for God's will on this. And you already have your mind made up. And you're just really, really hoping that God sends his blessing upon what you've already decided to do. And then when he doesn't answer it that way and he tells you to do something else, you're kind of like, was that the Lord or was that my hungry stomach? So I'll keep praying about it. And we kind of delay and we hesitate and we, we become disobedient under the claims of ignorance or under the claims of we didn't hear right. It's, it's, it's a sticky spot to go before the Lord asking him for direction when your mind is already made up. And this is what happens because in chapter 43, we see that Johanahan and his men don't like God's answer through Jeremiah. So in verse two, the middle, he says to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord, our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there, but it's Baruch. Yes. You remember his scribe Baruch? It's Baruch. He's the one. He has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. Jeremiah, you've always been for Babylon. And of course, you're going to tell us to stay here so they can kick us out of here again. You liar. So they're angry. (laughs) Why even bother asking him to ask God for them? I don't know. But... They had their mind made up and they're angry at him. So they go down to Jerusalem and guess who goes with them kicking and screaming? Jeremiah, like a kid on the first day of school. (laughs) He's forced to go with them. He's not going to stay and tell the Babylonians where they went or what they're up to. They got to keep Jeremiah with them. And so poor Jeremiah, the one who's preaching, 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 don't go to Egypt, is forced to go to Egypt. Well, in chapter 44, well, actually, at the end of 43, when they get to Egypt, he tells them this. The very thing you came to Egypt to flee is actually going to come and catch up to you in Egypt. You wanted to flee war and punishment from the Babylonians. Guess what? They're coming to Egypt. 
You think that this world empire isn't satisfied with having Egypt left untouched? You're just fleeing to their next destruction point. I'm telling you, stay in Israel. You're safe there. But they go to Egypt. And he says, okay, it's going to be defeated. And you guys are going to suffer the same fate Jerusalem did. So then in chapter 44, we read, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt, at Migdal, at Tafnes, at Memphis, in the land of Pathros, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of the evil they committed, provoking me to anger, in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not. And I persistently, verse 4, sent you all my servants, like Jeremiah, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. And that's the beginning of a speech Jeremiah is going to give in Egypt to the rejected remnant that dragged him to Egypt. And he's telling them in chapter 44, you know why all of this happened in the first place. You loved other gods. You gave your heart and your life to something that Yahweh didn't call you to give your heart and life to. That's why you're here. And so he's pleading with them. How long are you going to keep sacrificing your idols and carrying those little things around and loving them with all your heart and giving your life to them? How long? And they don't want to hear anything about it. Look in verse 15. After part one of Jeremiah's speech, then it's a response time. The people are responding to Jeremiah. Verse 15, then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods. It's always the wife's fault, right? And all the women, that's what they're thinking. That's not what I think. And all the women, that's what they say. All the men, the men who knew that their wives, that's, See, that's, that's not a man, by the way. Men take responsibility, right? <laughs> so, so there's lots of problems here. And all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings. See, they knew. They knew, right? Didn't Adam know what Eve was doing too? Yeah, so the Bible blames Adam, not Eve, by the way. <laughs> So here's the same thing. They know, but they do nothing about it. So all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah. So what are they answering him? Give up your idols. Don't you know that this is what caused all the problems? This is what they answer. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. So basically we're going to keep on the idolatrous path that Israel has been doing for centuries. For then we had plenty of food. When we sacrificed the queen of heaven, then we had plenty of food. We prospered. We saw no disaster. Verse 18. But since we left 
off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her. We have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. What? They are literally contradicting Jeremiah here. He said, all the disaster came because you worship gods, little g. They say, no, Jeremiah, you have it backwards. We were doing well as a nation and as a people when we worshiped the queen of heaven. But when we gave up worshiping the queen of heaven, that's when the Babylonians came and everything went downhill from there and we got destroyed. And I'm, and I'm kind of confused by that at first. But then I thought, what if what they're referring to is the reformation that happened under Josiah? Remember, Josiah was the king when Jeremiah came into power, uh, into his prophetic role. And Josiah was the king in power. And remember, they were cleaning out the temple and they found the scroll of Deuteronomy. And they read it and tore their clothes. And the whole nation got serious about the law again and obeying Yahweh. Is that what these complainers are referring to? Actually, Jeremiah, it was when we cleaned house of our idols and returned to Yahweh that things got bad. And actually, they have a point because it was during Jeremiah's ministry that things got bad. We didn't have the Babylonian threat while we worshiped the queen of heaven. Now, obviously, it's, it was too late, right? The reform, everything caught up with them and their hearts didn't really turn. We know that. It was just their actions and they kept doing the whole worship thing, but they kept living for the queen of heaven and things. And it was obvious that it wasn't a real reform. But in their minds, they're justifying their sin and they're justifying their deeds. They're saying, I'm in the right and I'm not wrong because look at the results. Pragmatically speaking, practically speaking, it was when we gave up worship to the queen of heaven that things got bad. What are they thinking? She's not happy with us. That's why the Babylonians came and made our lives miserable. She wasn't happy with our lack of worship. That's their thinking. We're going to come back to that because I think that's absolutely critical point. Well, so that's kind of how the speech from Jeremiah goes. They're hard-hearted. He warns that things are going to get bad. The Babylonians are going to sack Egypt as well. And then in chapter 45, it ends with this. Shortest chapter in the book. You were thinking that, weren't you? When he's heard, we have six chapters this week, and he saw 45, like, oh, that doesn't really count. That's good. <laughs> Some of you guys like to cheat like that. You want short chapters. So the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in the book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. Baruch, you said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to Baruch. Thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I am breaking down and what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. Even, it might mean the whole world because Babylon really destroyed much of the known world. So, and do you, verse five, and do you seek great things for yourself? Brooke, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not for behold, I am bringing disaster upon 
All flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. So Baruch is, remember last week in chapter 36, he was writing for Jeremiah his messages and they gave, and then he went and read them in the temple. And then the king burned up the scroll that probably took a lot of work to write, uh, very expensive too. Um, well, Baruch is during this time that chapter 45 is flashing back and he's seeing it and he's hearing Jeremiah's message. He's like, God, you're going to be, bring pain upon our sorrow. It's going to get really, really bad. What, what are you doing? And, and the scroll that I spent time writing with Jeremiah, the king just burned it up. And maybe Baruch was thinking, this would get me somewhere. This would be good on my resume. And it was just destroyed and everything I was working for. And, and the future looks bleak. And God says, Baruch, in light of things, it's not half that bad. You're going to escape with your life. Don't seek great things for yourself. So there's this encouragement to Baruch who may be feeling very discouraged, like his whole ministry alongside Jeremiah is going to waste and nobody's reading these scrolls and they're burning them up and cutting them up. And Baruch, I didn't call you to be great. I didn't call you to write with Jeremiah so that everybody would read your penmanship. You've done your job. So I think that this is a little closing encouragement. It kind of encapsulates a section, right? 36 started with Baruch writing. 36 started with him writing. And then 45 ends with him again with the pen in his hand. So we kind of have this both weeks connect in that way. Um, so that's, that's, that's what we got. So in recap, we got chapter 40. We've got, uh, we've got decisions starting over. Jeremiah says, I'm going to start over. Chapter 41, we got murder and assassination and conspiracy. And in chapter 42, we got pray for us. And in chapter 43, we got what? We're going to Egypt. And in chapter 44, we got turn from your idols. And in chapter 45, we have this encouragement to Baruch. Now, that's, that's the flow of things. But what, what's at the heart of this narrative? Why does Jeremiah even care about what's happening with the rejected remnant that's surrounded by ruins and rubble? Why even focus on it? It would seem like the story would fittingly end with Jerusalem falls and that's it. That sounds like the end of the story. Who cares about these neglected, poor peasants that are left with rocks everywhere and no farms and they're starting from scratch and this weeping prophet who stays with them and all these assassinations and it seems like they're hopeless and they just go to Egypt anyways, the place where the whole story began, right? Being let out of Egypt. Oh, they're just going back. But there's something that's happening here and I think that we're all in this place at times, even now, when we find ourselves as the rejected remnant, our life once was a beautiful fortress called Jerusalem, and now it is a pile of rubble and its ruins. We feel rejected and reviled. Imagine how the people felt here, and what a step it was for Jeremiah to choose to live with them. Babylon, what does this represent? Nothing good. They're the ones that destroyed our temple and made a mockery of our God. They're the ones that sieged our city 
tore down its walls, uh, killed hundreds of our people, thousands of our people from starvation and by the sword and by disease. They came in and stole our women, our wives, our daughters, our children. Uh, They're taking some of them to slavery. They were removing some of us to another land. Everything that Israel was is reduced to that rubble, to those ruins. Babylon becomes a symbol of shame. You don't want to speak of Babylon. Ishmael didn't at all. Even one of his own brothers, Gedaliah, because he was appointed by Babylon to rule, I got to kill him and all of his henchmen. Babylon is deep shame and we want to remember nothing about it. We want to get rid of it. The remnant too, right? Uh, the remnant, we, we read that in chapter 40, verse 7, that they were the poorest of the land that were left. There are those people that the powers that be don't want. You know, you're playing kickball like you did in school, and you're, they're choosing teams. And it's, it's those last ones that the two teams are arguing about who gets to have. You take them, you take them. That's who's left. This is shame. This is insecurity. This is yuck. We don't like our, look where we live. We are the laughing stock of the world right now because we claim that our God would save us. And this is where we are. The beautiful Jerusalem, the wonderful temple, smoke is rising, ashes falling, rocks everywhere. What was here is not here anymore. Look who's running this place. Our government can't get along. They're fighting each other. We're left with the poorest of the poor working the land. This is how they feel. There is shame. So how do they deal with this? How do they push through this? I think that what we're seeing with murder with Ishmael with running to Egypt from Johanahan and from returning to the queen of heaven like the idolaters in Egypt, I think what we're seeing with these things is the different reactions we all run to when we're faced with the ruins and rubble of our life. There's a book called The Gifts of of imperfection and this is a line from it it says this in order to deal with shame some of us move away by withdrawing hiding silencing ourselves and keeping secrets so some of us move away from shame some of us move toward shame by seeking to appease and please it Fix it, make it right. Uh, And third, some of us move against shame by trying to gain power over others, by being aggressive and by using shame to fight shame. So you have these three different reactions to shame. You have the people that move away from shame and kind of withdraw into themselves and think that that's one way I can just ignore the ruins and the rubble. I'll get away. You have those that try to attack shame. When it's revealed in their life, they come back with nastiness. 
You know, somebody points something out about you and you don't like the fact that that weakness was brought up. So you're not exactly kind back to them. Well, you do this or something like that. And it's this fight and it's this struggle for who's the most powerful. Because right now, both of us don't feel very good about ourselves. We have to prove ourselves. And then there's the moving towards shame. This, I now have to become subject to it in a sense. And I'm going to try to live in it and fix it and redo it and try to become the master over it. Appease it. This is what we got in the story. We have Ishmael, the angry one who sees the shame of Babylon and what it did and the ruins and the rubble. And he looks at Gedaliah, a symbol of Babylon's strength over the remnant. And what does he do with his shame? He runs against it. He goes right for it and does the whole fighting technique. He moves against the shame. And this is where we see the bloodbath. And this is where we see him trying to gain power and to struggle. And this is, yes, I'm now in charge. I got rid of Babylon. And some of us are warring with one another because this is the way we're dealing with our shame. We want to just go attack and get rid of every remnant, every little remain of rubble and ruin and embarrassment. And anybody who sees it, we need to go after them and make sure they keep their mouth shut. And you never talk to me like that. You never see that again. Very aggressive. That's Ishmael. And we see Johanahan. He's the one who moves away from shame. He sees this chaos around him. And what does he do? Jeremiah, ask God what we're supposed to do. Stay here. No, I can't embrace the shame. I'm going to run from it. Come on, everybody to Egypt. And they go to Egypt. Why Egypt? Because he got a heap of rocks and smoke and ashes and ruins and a rejected remnant who's the poor of the land. And then you've got the sophisticated culture of Egypt with the pyramids and the Nile River and there's security and there's food and you know what you're going to get. This is the bigger and better. This is shameful here, Jerusalem. Let us go to the bigger and better. Let's flee from the shame and get to Egypt. We'll feel better about ourselves. We will then be worth our weight in gold. We will then be enough. Let's get to Egypt. And that's how some of us are responding to our ruins we look and see that the grass seems always greener on the other side of the fence. We're always discontent with our lot, with our position, with our place. And we want desperately to get to Egypt. We're looking for the bigger and better because our life, it feels so mundane and mediocre. And I feel so unimportant in the mundane and mediocre. So we seek for the bigger and the better. We seek for the Egypt because that's where I will be important. That's where I will matter. And then we got the Jews in Egypt with the queen of heaven. So Ishmael moved against the shame. Johanahan moved away from the shame. And then the people in Egypt moved toward their shame. Under the queen of heaven they sought to appease her and to please her. Remember what they said there in chapter 44 
It's in verse 18. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and been consumed by the sword and by famine. It was as soon as we didn't do enough that this shame came upon us. So what we want to do is we need to do more. We weren't doing enough for the queen of heaven. We need to start working harder and giving her more and devoting more time and be more religious and more zealous. More, more, more. This isn't enough, people. This is why bad things happened. We weren't good enough for her. So we have to work up our status and to become worthy for her. Then we'll be good enough and then we'll be accepted and then she'll pour down her blessings upon us. How backwards from the doctrine of grace, huh? That's the idea that God can't bless me or he can't love me or he can't be happy with me or he can't save me until I am good enough. Praise the Lord that our worth is not measured by our wealth. It's not measured by our waist size. It's not measured by our work and our accomplishments or by the things we own. Our worth is measured by what God says about us in Jesus Christ. And he never folds his arms and says, well, since you stopped doing this, you're not good enough. And he's not prodding us by saying, do more, be better, be good enough. There's never that attitude of you're not good enough. But shame wants to tell you that. And the ruin and rubbles in our lives, sometimes we are tempted to look at them and say, this is because I failed to pray. This is because I didn't go to church for three months. I now, therefore, need to read my Bible five hours a day, fast three days a week, tithe 50% of my income. I need to lash myself with a whip on the back and punish myself for my sins. You can go down the line of things that need, how am I going to be enough And when we start to listen to shame and it says, you are not enough, we don't only start to try to earn God's attention, but then we start to look at just life in general and say, this is not enough. And we begin to look for Egypt and we begin to battle the other people to seem, who seem to have it together and seem to make us feel even more insignificant. So we become Ishmael's, we become Johannahan's, and we become like the people who worship the queen of heaven. All when we fail, all when we fail to understand what it means to live by grace. That God is a giving God. That's grace. It keeps flowing like a fount. And the eyes of faith see this and receive it. So our question earlier was, is the bigger and better always bigger and better? 
And is the mundane and mediocre always mundane and mediocre? Jeremiah would say no. He actually is encouraging them in the mundane and mediocre. Look at chapter 40, verse 10. Um, this is Gedaliah's words as he's taking charge. He tells them, my job is to represent you guys to Babylon. I'm kind of in between. I'm, I'm the safety barrier. Your job, verse 10, as for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come before us. Uh, but as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. All this rubble and ruin. You're to start to cultivate the land. You're supposed to make something fruitful out of it. Live. Make it better. And in verse 12, we see that this happens uh, towards the end. It says, and they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. So this is what they're to do. Live in the land and, and work it and keep it up. And then in chapter 42, verse 9. Oh, I already read this to you, but uh, this is where Jeremiah is telling them, stay here in the land in verse 10. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up. I will not pull you down. I will plant you. I will not pluck you up. So God is saying through Gedaliah, stay in the land, build up the rubbles and plant seed and make fruit come out of it. And then through Jeremiah, he confirms that him, stay in this land because God will be with you to build this up. He will be with you to plant. You guys are going to be fruitful once again. So that's the call. Yes, it's shameful. Yes, it, there's ruins and rubble and there's nothing here and you're the rejected remnant. Yes, it's mundane and mediocre. But build and plant there. That's what faith does. Faith sees beyond what seems to be. It looks at these ruins and this rubble and it recognizes the fact that everyone sees it as a rejected remnant and it, and it sees in all of this what could be, yay, better, what will be. The New Testament promises to us the new Jerusalem. God's people aren't destined for ruin and rubbles. We're destined for a restored Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem on a new heaven and new earth. That, that is what the eyes of faith see when it looks around and it sees we're a rejected remnant. There's rubbles and ruin and all of this is we're reviled and the eyes of faith looks at this and it doesn't see rocks strewn about the land and ashes and smoke it sees what these rocks will look like. It sees what will be there in place. That's why Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can tell this tree to move into the ocean and it will do so. Now, we often read that and think what he said is, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. And we think that what that means is, okay, the mustard seed is small, so if I have just a little bit of faith, so it's all about the size of my faith. If I have bigger faith, then I can do bigger things. Actually, he didn't say the size of a mustard seed. He said, if you have faith like a mustard seed. 
Well, what's a mustard seed like? A mustard seed is very small. It's very insignificant. It can be part of the mediocre and mundane. Easy to pass up. A seed is not much. You can't even eat it. And it hardly, I mean, you can eat it, but it hardly does anything for you. All it's good for is being put in the ground and buried and forgotten about in a sense. It's just good for the dirt. But that seed and the eyes of faith, right? The eyes of faith see what a seed will be. And so the seed begins to grow and it, then it turns into something. It's built, it's planted. It's, it's, a mustard seed is now fruitful. That's what the eyes of faith do with the shame and Babylon and the rubble and ruins around us. It looks at all of this and sees what it will be. And it's hard. The mediocre, the mundane, you know, the waking up every day and going to the same job, feeling like you're not contributing to the world, which I haven't saved a single person in my whole life, never even witnessed. I don't even know what my... I, I, I'm not like Pastor Mike, still pastoring and taking on more responsibilities when I should be retired. And like, I'm not like all these people. And that's, that's true. That's Mike's story. He said, I didn't throw that in. And, and we look at all this and we can think like, man, I'm so insignificant. The eyes of faith don't look at that. Remember, they look at what will be. And this is how Jesus put the kingdom of heaven. This is chapter 4 of Mark. He says in Mark 4.26, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. Nothing significant, right? Just same old routine. Sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. What is this farmer doing? He's going through life. Yet the seed is doing something and he doesn't even know how or what. And then the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. It just, it begins to just, something happens. And the guy is just going through his routine. It's mundane, mediocre. I'm just a farmer. I don't own a lot of land like those rich aristocrats in Rome and I'm not some senator for the Caesar. None of this stuff's happening for me. I'm just, just a farmer. Nobody even knows my name. I'll die. Nobody will remember. It's night and day, same old routine, but the seed is growing and there's fruit coming from that. And then it ends by saying, but when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. When that seed has fully grown, there is sudden action. And we live life in the mundane and the mediocre and, and shame hounds us. We look at ruins and rubble and we think, I need to go to Egypt. I need to kill Gedaliah. I need to appease the queen of heaven. And all these things are going on through our mind when really God is just saying, build and plant. Keep going one day at a time. Because one day that seed will be fully grown and sudden awesome action. The harvest will happen. You don't know it might be around the corner, but just be ready. One day your life will pick up. And don't miss it because you're looking for Egypt or you're looking how to assassinate or you're looking to appease the wrong God. Be okay that life isn't always exciting. But know, as prophets say, we talked about this earlier, a prophet's job is to remind people of God and now and that God is there in the now. Not then, not ahead, just now. And God is here. 
What that tells me is that tonight is the most important night of your life. Tomorrow is the most important day of your life. Yesterday wasn't. Tomorrow isn't. Every day, it might just be another Monday, right? I got meetings on, I don't like Monday. Meeting Monday. And my head hurts when I wake up. I can't get enough sleep because Brandon didn't stop talking and we went to bed late. And, you know, the routine, right? And it's just a Monday and you're living, you know, and you're thinking like, what? It really counts on Friday. Friday's what really counts. So you kind of tolerate the week. But I think that God would say differently that Monday morning, as mundane and mediocre as that is, that is the most important day of your life right then. Stuff is growing. Faith is looking at those ruins and rubble and it's saying there's something here. Build and plant today. Keep going. So, yeah, bigger and better is not always bigger and better. The mundane and mediocre is not always mundane and mediocre. Sometimes the mundane and mediocre is bigger and better, but it takes faith to see it. So that's what Baruch did. Baruch in chapter 45. That's what he was encouraged to do at least. See, he's down on himself, right? Because like, oh, the scroll got burned and I'm not what I thought I'd be. And God says, don't seek great things for yourself. In other words, it's okay if great things happen to you. Like, great. To be honest, the church needs to embrace that sometimes. I think sometimes we're too shy about letting great things happen. But here's what he's telling Baruch. Baruch had these goals, and he didn't quite meet what he thought would happen. And God's telling him, don't let your failure in your work tell you that you're a failure as a person. It didn't pan out the way you thought, but it panned out the way I wanted it. So don't seek great things for yourself. Meaning, don't seek for things that you think are greater than what I've planned for you. Your life may feel like you're in the rubbles and the ruins. You're in a place of shame. You feel unworthy, Baruch. But God says, it's okay. I did this. You will get your life. Embrace it. Plant and build and keep moving. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 tells us that it's in our weakness, in our shame, in those vulnerable places that God's grace becomes powerful. That's where it happens. We don't have to fix those weaknesses to please God. We need to acknowledge them, live with them, and let God's grace fix them. That's the difference. So I think that what we see here uh, in closing is that What you do, what you accomplish, your work does not define your worth. And you might be in a mediocre and mundane life. We don't all get to be missionaries on the battlefield. Pastors dodging tomatoes. But by living in grace every day, that's what defines the earth. God's not saying not good enough. Look at the ruins around you. What's up? He's saying, look at the ruins around you. You are enough. My grace is sufficient. And I'm calling you to plant and build. And I'll be there with you. One day, the mundane and mediocre will bloom. It will be fruitful. And there will be a harvest 
and you'll get to swing the sickle. So Lord, I pray that you help us to be patient, to stop defining ourselves by what our culture says of us, or to stop defining ourselves by how we compare ourselves to other people. But God, that we would let your grace define us. Weak, yes. Ruined, yes. Shame, we feel it. But your grace says you are more than enough for me. And so Lord, we're thankful how you see us. We're thankful how you're working our lives. Forgive us for yearning for Egypt, for thinking of how to take down Gedaliah. Forgive us for thinking that you are like the queen of heaven, demanding more. Help us to live by grace tonight. Amen.